This is the Monday, October 23rd, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine shuttles back and forth between the 1880s and the 1980s, with a story anchored in both eras at the end of family trees and DNA strands. Our guide on this journey is Fiona Davis, author of The Address, a novel. If you enjoyed Fiona Davis's previous book, The Dollhouse, about the famed Barbizon Hotel for Women, you'll want to dig into the address. The book builds a bridge between two women united across a century by the Dakota. Famous today as home to celebrities and artists, and infamous as the place John Lennon met his doom. In the Gilded Age when it was built, the Dakota was an enigma, plopped in the middle of Upper Manhattan's muddy fields, still dotted with ramshackle farmhouses, and farm animals. By the 1980s, the Dakota had fallen into sooty disrepair and found its grand apartments suffering architectural indignities like, shudder with me, dear listeners, lime green shag carpets, bamboo walls, and mirrored closets, floor-to-ceiling mirrored closets. Like the story she weaves her readers, Fiona Davis's life is one of broad experience, with twists and turns along the way. Born in Canada and raised in places as far-flung as Utah, Texas, and New Jersey, she worked for years as an actress on Broadway and attended both the College of William and Mary and the Columbia School of Journalism. You can find her online at FionaDavis.net or Fiona J. Davis on Twitter. I was really passionate about this interview, and it comes across here when we chat. I was just overflowing with enthusiasm for the address, and I hope you'll enjoy the chat as much as I enjoyed it and enjoyed the book. Okay, now that we've hailed a handsome cab to take us up to the far, undeveloped reaches of Upper Manhattan, hold on to your bowler hat and let's join Fiona Davis at the address. I'm joined on the line by novelist Fiona Davis, author of The Address. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Oh, thank you. I am so honored to be here. I can't tell you. Well, the honor is all mine, and listeners may not be able to tell from my relatively deadpan demeanor, but I had to take a minute just because I was so excited to speak with you. You're one of my favorite new authors now. This is your second book, which congratulations on 
cranking it out. I'll use that term in the best possible sense and still have such high quality on the heels of the dollhouse. Oh. And <laughs> go ahead. You can, you can say thanks. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's great. And not only did you write a second novel and avoid the pitfall of many second-time novelists who are really being pushed by a lot of factors to put out a second book right away, and sometimes you can lose quality control when you rush anything, you wrote not just about the distant past, but also about one that's still in our living memory, that being the 1980s. I've read about you popping out at the 72nd Street subway stop and beholding the Dakota there and how that inspired you to write the address. But what brought you to this approach of two parallel plots intertwined across time rather than just go set up shop in the Gilded Age and write about the Dakota then? That's <laughs> such a good question. You know, I love dual timelines. I love historical fiction that jump back and forth. And you know, I think part of me thought, well, I love reading it. So of course, that's what I should write. And, you know, luckily, especially with the first book, which also has dual timelines, I didn't realize what I was getting into. <laughs> I think if I'd understood how hard it is to do that and to intertwine the plots, I would have never even attempted it. But I think it was because I loved it so much. And so many books I read were dual timelines. And, and so it was really a challenge to see if I could pull it off. And what I love about it especially is that it reflects the characters' voices over time. And for me, especially women's voices over time. The address was about reflecting how women had different opportunities a hundred years apart and how they, you know, either were able to take advantage of them or weren't. And so I like that juxtaposition. The idea of opportunities and limitations is something that's great for fiction, for keeping a character in that crucible. But in the address, not only is the viewpoint character of Sarah Smythe back in the 19th century limited by the things I'm sure everybody pictures about the Victorian era, but Bailey Camden in the 20th century, your 1980s character, she has limitations of her own. She's struggled with alcoholism. So as anybody who's been an alcoholic knows, they have limitations. People are always trying to get you to go out. You have to avoid your old friends. You can't fall in with that crowd. There are many limitations on you. So so I thought that that was a great approach to show that they did have something in common, that they both had these things that were holding them to this really small place, the straight and narrow, as they call it, this road that they had to both walk while all these other things are going on, while your plot unfolds, it makes them very sympathetic. You really feel for them. Oh, that's so great to hear. And yes, and, and I also liked the idea of showing how someone who was struggling with addiction or mental illness or whatever it was in the 1880s was treated compared to someone struggling with a similar issue in the 1980s. And without giving too much away, kind of how bad it got for someone in the 1880s and just how, you know, how tough it was in both eras, but how things had changed over time. I usually say when I want to give people an idea of what it was like back then that there's a movie, The Snake Pit, in 1948. And The Snake Pit was this idea prevalent at the time that 
something that would drive a sane person insane would drive an insane person sane, which a lot of medicine back then, I don't like to condescend to the past because God knows what people in a hundred or 200 years will think of us today, but <laughs> it just, it's very, the, the medical thinking was all very like what a five-year-old would think. There was that commercial with, see the VCR eats these VHS tapes. And so then the toddler goes and starts shoving oatmeal into the VCR. Yes, yes. It's sort of that mentality. And that's something you mm-hmm. certainly have here in the address where you you're looking at what they're suffering and trying to prove yourself sane was just impossible. You were just, you're insane now, you're here, and we're just going to keep giving you these, you can't even call them treatments, but they think they're treatments. That was really tough to go with her on that road. Yeah, absolutely. And and also the fact that back then, women who perhaps English wasn't their first language could easily be sent away simply because they couldn't communicate in English. Right. They would think you were crazy sometimes. Just yeah. You couldn't speak. So it would just seem, again, very much like a five-year-old. What's wrong with that person? Why are they speaking that way? You know, it's just, while well, they're speaking another language. That's why. That that sounds normal to them. I mean, we start screaming at them or something. Right. That's not how it works. It doesn't work if it's just louder. Yeah. Speaking of which, you have Nellie Bly, the pen name of the intrepid journalist Elizabeth Cochran Seaman. She plays a critical role here in the address, and that's where you get a lot of this going deep into the treatment of the insane at the time or those thought to be mentally unbalanced. Since you studied journalism, I wondered if you decided to include Nellie Bly from the start or if it was a happy coincidence later where you had an opportunity for her to walk into your plot and jump into it. (laughs) You know, when I was researching the book and I was reading everything I could about the 1880s and the Gilded Age. I really enjoyed going to first person accounts. So instead of reading a book by a historian about what happened then, to read a book by someone who was actually there. And so Nellie Bly's account of going undercover at this insane asylum on an island off of Manhattan, which she wrote a number of articles about that were then put into a book called 10 Days in the Madhouse. And it was so brutal, her description of what went on there, that as I read it, I thought, well, what an amazing setting, because it contrasts so strongly with, you know, the luxury of the Dakota. You know, I don't spend too much time there because it is pretty harrowing. But I just thought I've got to get a character in there in some way and um, kind of see how it unfolds. And I, I just couldn't help myself to have Nellie Bly just make a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and, and that's the journalist in me wanting to get the word out about how interesting she was. She did so many, so many amazing things back at that time. So yeah, that's where it came from, really from the research phase of the novel. Every time Esther Crane at the Ephemeral New York blog puts out a story about her, it's just so inspiring, but also terrifying, even all these years later, because she goes undercover there and there's no way for her to get out. If the people that know that she's there, and I think it's only one person, maybe her editor that knows she's there. If he gets hit by a streetcar, which was very possible in those days, I mean, they they called 11th Avenue Death Avenue. So that gives you an idea (laughs) of how dangerous it was on the streets. She's trapped there because you can't prove that you're sane. Mm -hmm. And when she talks about how this brutal treatment would drive anybody insane after a few days, after a week, maybe the food, the, the abuse, the not being allowed to talk, all of these things. It really is something where you look then at the Dakota and you say, you would just think you literally had woken up and found yourself in hell. And that's what happens to one of the characters here. 
Right, right. And, you know, most of the book does take place in and around the Dakota, which was this beautiful apartment house that, you know, had all the luxuries inside. It had a tailor and a baker. And and so even for my character, Sarah, who works there um, as the kind of head resident manager at the time, she's part of two worlds. And that was very interesting to develop. One reason I enjoy historical fiction like this is it whets our appetite to learn facts about real people that pop up in there, like Nellie Bly. You did that in one line where Bailey, our heroine in the 1980s, repeats the myth about how the Dakota got its name. And it made me wonder how you first learned that myth, I suppose, that day when you popped out of the subway on 72nd Street, that maybe you'd already heard that myth and just assumed that it was true, but maybe not. Why did you feel so strongly that you had to include debunking it there in the address? Or why did you include? I don't know that you felt strongly. It just yes. <laughs> oh, sure. You know, when I, I had heard the myth that the Dakota was named the Dakota because it was so far away from the rest of the city at the time. It was in the middle of swamps and rocks and shanties and pigsties, basically. But in fact, and I learned this during my research, um, the owner, Edward Clark, who built the Dakota had this real obsession with all things to do with the American West. And in fact, he wanted to name everything on the Upper West Side as it was developed after territories and states and places out West. So, Hmm. for example, he wanted Amsterdam Avenue, which we have now, to be called Arizona Place. And he wanted West End Avenue to be called Idaho Place. So he had this grand vision. But he died a couple years before the Dakota opened. And so we are just left with the Dakota as the last remnant of his kind of cowboy obsession. And the reason I had to include it in the book is that whenever I mentioned to someone that I was working on a book set in the Dakota, they always said, oh, it was called X. It was so far away at the time. (laughs) And so I'd correct them. (laughs) And then I realized, you know, it'd be a lot easier to just put it in the book. Right. Yeah. Then you know who read it and who didn't. They come to you and say, is that real? (laughs) Exactly. People don't give up their myths about things like that easily. And I always say on the History Author Show, I love when someone tells me that I'm wrong because if I'm carrying around something incorrect, I don't want to repeat it then to people. And I like when I even get an email and they say, you got that a little bit wrong. You know, somebody was born in a different place. So that's (laughs) great to know because it is such a beautiful building. I don't know if people who are outside the city of even Google, you know, sit on Google and look around there. And then Google around to Gilded Age in Manhattan pictures at the New York Historical Society or places like that. Ephemeral New York, as I mentioned. Yeah. She'll have those on there all the time, Esther. And you can see these shanties, literal shanty house. If you picture those boards there that are holding up a roof and a water pump out front, and it'll say that this is some great address today, some spacious address. It predates the grid. The grid is sometimes just a little line in the road in the dirt, literally. And so... This was amazing. They put the address, they put the Dakota there at the real outskirts of Manhattan, way up there. And this is where you begin your story with Sarah Smythe arriving there in the 19th century. Her name is S-M-Y-T-H-E, which is a spelling we don't see a lot today. We see it sometimes for Smith in those days. And I liked her name, Sarah Smythe, and then 
Bailey Camden in the 20th century because that sort of gives you a clue right away. I don't imagine when I've read that I see a lot of Baileys running around in the Gilded Age. It just seems like a more <laughs> more modern name. There may well have been. I mean, there were Melissa's way back in Roman times. It's an, an ancient name, but it sounds very modern as Ooh. we discussed in Feast of Sorrows with Crystal King. And so that's one of those things. I like that you use not only the names there to visually set things up or and invoke that vision for the readers. But you also put in some little tells there so that you are switching back between those two timelines. You mentioned that that's hard work. So I wanted to give you a chance to show us the strings there a little bit, the pencil marks that you erased. How did you make sure that you kept everything straight for the reader as they jumped back and forth and avoided anachronisms in the address? Yeah, it's tough. I I really tried to do some really deep research. So as I read what was going on in the Gilded Age, I was getting used to the details of what carriages they drove in, what they wore, what fabrics, getting as specific as I can. And with the first book, The Dollhouse, I wrote it going back and forth in time. Each chapter changes time period. But with this one, I didn't. With this one, I wrote all of Sarah's story in the 19th century first, straight through. And that helped because it kept me locked into that time period. It's also um, the major portion of the book. Bailey's story is a little shorter. And so once I was done with that, I could focus on the 1980s. I go back and check the etymology of certain words that if I'm not sure they would be used in the 1880s, I'll, I can check that online. Thank goodness for that. And what I do is I, I write a rough first draft and then layer in more period details as I go along. So I might write, you know, she was wearing blank. And then I'll go back once I have the story in my head and really layer in the specifics of what they were wearing and what they were eating. And it's so much fun to, to go back in time and kind of figure out, all right, what was on a menu on a, in a restaurant back then? How is it different? And I'm very lucky in that I work with great editors and proofreaders. So for example, I think I mentioned a bed and breakfast that Sarah had worked at a bed and breakfast before she moved to the Dakota. And, you know, luckily the proofreader said, well, bed and breakfast was only started being used as a term in 1905. Hmm. (laughs) And, and you wouldn't really have, I really didn't think twice about it. So that helps a lot is having a backup team who can catch things because you really you don't want you don't want people to be jarred out of time by something that you get wrong. You want them to follow what you're saying and not what you're doing and read it. And I know as somebody who's read extensively in that period, those kind of things do jump out at me. Like a zipper would be the easiest thing in the world to say, well, you unzipped something, but they didn't have zippers, right? Right. That would knock you right out of the place. And also you enjoy it too, because you've done all that research. You want to share it with your readers and make it an accurate story. I mentioned early on that you turned this book out very fast and maintained quality control. I guess that's with the editors. But (laughs) I wanted to ask, as somebody who's lost many hours doing something like Googling around for old pictures of the Upper West Side or something, how did you make sure that you kept your research narrow? Because I imagine that you could have spent two years and kept telling the editor, well, I'm not ready yet, or telling the publisher I'll be ready in another month. But you really need to discipline yourself. How did you do that? 
I think to me the plot comes first, the characters and the plot come first. So I do the deep research, and I agree, you could get lost for hours reading you know, some of the books that I've read. And I had a, an amazing book on the Dakota by a man named Andrew Alpern, which had floor plans and lists of who lived there back in the day. And I could just spend days um, reading that kind of thing. But what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm on a mission to figure out who the main characters will be. Once that starts sparking my imagination, I figure out who the characters are, and then I figure out what situations I want to place them in, and then there's an element of mystery that's always involved that, that connects the two time periods. And at that point, I want to tell a story, and I want to see if I can tell this story as well as I possibly can. And so that's the driving force is to see if I can get all of this down on paper. And so once that takes over, I'll go back and look up references and make sure I've got things right and check and recheck facts and dates. I'm one of those people who loves to check things off lists. Oh, me too. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and yeah, and so it gets me to finish things because I want to see how it's done when it's done. Right. It's very rewarding to do that, to be able to yes. cross something out. It is something that keeps you going, keeps you on those rails. And so important here where you're jumping back and forth between two centuries, it would be so easy to lose yourself. Right. Yes, absolutely. Because we don't want to give away too much of a novel, I like to ask authors to read a passage to give us a flavor. And just like dialogue, the passage that the author chooses says something about what they think is important and their passion for their work. So I'm always excited. I don't ask beforehand what you're going to read. So go ahead, set up this passage from the address and have at it. Yes, thank you so much. So this is early in the book when our character, Sarah, who's coming from London, where she's worked at a fancy hotel, to work at the Dakota. And she's just arrived into New York Harbor and has a carriage and is driving up Manhattan. As the carriage swayed up the wide avenue with an empty park on one side and a wasteland on the other, Sarah's heart sank. In London, you could wander the squares and see loveliness. You just had to know where to look. Nothing was lovely here. She shifted to the other side of the carriage and stuck her head out the window. An enormous building, the color of butter, seemed to have been plopped down on the flat landscape by a giant, like something you'd find in a German fairy tale. She counted nine stories with windows that a man could stand in and not reach the top pane, and a complicated gabled roof lacking any consistent pattern. Is that it? Sure is. They've been working on it for years. The driver turned his head and shouted back at her, built by a fool named Clark. Why is Clark a fool? It's a monstrosity in the middle of nowhere. No good families would dream of living here, I tell you. Can only imagine what sort will end up inside. Lucky devil died before he could see it finished. She'd pictured a handsome building, like the Langham Hotel, smack in the middle of the city, surrounded by shops and parks, where brooms with well-matched pairs of horses pulled up to discharge their passengers. But this place was dismal, the street still unpaved. She should have asked more questions about the owners, the location. If the driver were correct, the clientele would be ignorant of the niceties, fine linens, good manners, a certain distance from the staff that made the role of housekeeper manageable. At least in her previous positions, the guests would check out at some point, head off to other destinations. The Dakota residents would be here to stay. What I love about that passage is not only do we get an idea of her two worlds, but 
there's something that is true across timelines, and that is that cab drivers, men driving handsome cabs back then or, or driving yellow cabs today, they are always great for exposition. <laughs> and I didn't even read it or realize it when I read the book because it was done so seamlessly. But you reading it there, I thought it's so natural because it's the most natural thing in the world for them to talk. And here she is driving. And we've all had that experience if we've taken a cab in this city where you don't quite know where you're going. And then you get there and you say... <laughs> wait, this is the address, you're checking your, your phone. I mean, today, I guess it's not as obvious as it would have been or not as common in the 80s and in the 1880s. But you look at your phone and you say, wait, this this is the address? Yeah, oh, yeah, they told me it's downstairs. I guess I'll go knock on the door and you, may, you know, should ask the cab to wait and that kind of thing. The second thing was it very much invokes the cover of the address. And this is kind of a montage, I guess, from reading The Dust Jacket, a 1910 photo of the Dakota. I wanted to know if you had any input in that cover or if you didn't, what was your reaction the first time you saw it? What do you think of it? Oh, I love it. Um, You know, I, I had imagined, yeah, a black and white photo with the Dakota in the background. But the idea that they put her on Bow Bridge, which is this beautiful bridge in Central Park, and she's wearing this gorgeous long green coat. And so she's kind of a touch of color in this black and white image. I thought they knocked it out of the ballpark. I absolutely love it. And with the suitcase, too, there's very much a story being told right there. She's clearly paused and looking at it for the first time and getting her bearings. And it's winter. There's no leaves on the trees. There's so much going on there. I thought it was a very vivid cover. And of course, I look at a lot of them. So <laughs> I really like that one. It made me, made me want to find out who is this woman? Why, why is she on the bridge? And where is she going? That passage that you read, why did you choose that? You just like the setup of it, bring her right in there? Yeah. You know, I like it's the first time we see the Dakota through her eyes and it's a fun juxtaposition with when Bailey sees the Dakota in the 1980s and describes it as covered in soot and dark and foreboding and just how it's changed over time, just the same way the city's changed over time. By the eighties, they're all kind of dirty. They described Penn Station, the old Penn Station, when they tried to fix it up at one point and they said it looked like a, dirty boy, a street urchin who had just washed his hands for dinner, but everything else was filthy. They only cleaned it like up to as high as they could reach. So this is one reason we don't have the great old Penn Station anymore. Unfortunately, they knocked it down. So we're suffering with the modern sort of 60s version. But that was sort of the thing that I thought there. It's here's this grand old building and it's seen balls. It's seen all this excitement. It's seen the best of the best of New York society. And now it's stuck there where different people have moved into the neighborhood and there's all this terrible stuff and it's just been neglected, forgotten by people. So I thought that was a great juxtaposition. And then to have Bailey doing some of the reconstruction there. And then you brought in all of that where people (laughs) who do do renovations, you walk into a house that's a great old colonial and you say, well, when was this kitchen put in 1982? It just screams at you and you say, why? Why did you do that? (laughs) There's a patriot from the American Revolution in my hometown of Cresco, New Jersey, and they ripped out the kitchen. They just put in this whole stainless steel kitchen. It's just such an eyesore. You understand that you're not going to make it with the same kind of kitchen you would have had in colonial times. But that is very real to people who like to do things like architecture and decorating, where you say, 
have something that's at least in the period that doesn't scream at you that it's out of it. And I thought that was a great thing to read in the address where that's kind of a little subplot there. She needs to convince people, Bailey does, that she's not their enemy. I think the super says, he introduced her and says, she's one of the good guys. She's on our side about the historic preservation. Right. They take some steps there that further the plot of her trying to do her job, but also trying to preserve this great history of this great building. Yes, yeah. And, you know, I like the idea that in the 1880s, they've just built it. And so there is the molding and the plaster ceilings and the marble floors are all being put in. And then you have 1980, where Bailey has to oversee this horrendous renovation where they're tearing it all out and putting in shag carpets and floor to ceiling mirrors, which was very postmodern in the 80s. And that's actually what some people did. Yeah, <laughs> it little lingered for about as a style for about 20 minutes, and then everybody sort of came down off of their <laughs> yeah. whatever substance that they were on at the time and said, oh my gosh. What were we thinking? Yeah, what have we done? I interviewed the tavern keeper of the old 76 house, which is where they kept Major Andre as a prisoner after he was caught with the plans for West Point that he got from Benedict Arnold. And it's a place that Alexander Hamilton stayed and George Washington was there when the, he received the final surrender of the British. Mm. The tavern keeper was telling me when he walked in there in the 80s that it was just like that. It was drop ceiling, green shag carpet in there. And yes. he did all of this work to try to restore the place and build it up and rescue this great old tavern that you can yeah. go back to today and right. feel like you're there at the time. You could still preserve the past while telling a great story about the future, while living your current life and have a microwave in there and that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We're speaking with Fiona Davis, author of The Address, a novel. You can visit her online at FionaDavis.net or Fiona J. Davis on Twitter. Publishers Weekly writes of the book, quote, Davis overlays the two histories beautifully, adding, The book, rife with historical description and architectural detail, will appeal to design and history buffs alike. Fiona, I only quibble there with one word, and that's rife. We usually don't say good things are rife with things, it doesn't, <laughs> but, but I know I know what they mean, though. It, it does have a lot of historical description, but it's not too much. It's not overpowering. <laughs> People pick up the address. It's always pushing things forward. But what's no easy feat there is that you please not only readers that are knowledgeable about the two eras, but also those who've studied architecture, those who are people who do like to walk in there and say, okay, those floor-to-ceiling mirrors, that's definitely 80s, and that's coming out because that's not of the period of the Dakota. In your acknowledgments, you mentioned taking creative license with the dates, for example, when the Statue of Liberty arrived and that kind of thing. And the same thing with the, the decorating, you know, you had to be able to walk in there and put yourself in those shoes, but still tell a story. So I wanted to ask how you found that sweet spot. Is it easier now after the second novel, maybe to know when it's okay to free yourself from the historical and give readers the fiction that they enjoy? It's a tightrope to walk because I really want to make sure the story, the structure of the story, the framework of the historical detail and facts is correct, and then let the characters who are fictional take it from there. So I try not to take too much creative license. For example, when the Statue of Liberty arrived, it arrived in the summer of 1885. And during my research, I read a New York Times article right after it happened that described it, of how when the boat carrying 
the Statue of Liberty, the pieces of it, arrived in New York Harbor. It was met with a parade of boats and there were bands playing and it was this huge celebration that everybody turned out for. And I thought, you know, I can set a scene there. How fantastic would that be? So I did that. But then as happens in later revisions, I needed to fudge some dates because I needed certain things to happen at a certain time. And I found that that scene needed to take place in the fall of 1885. I don't like the idea of switching something like that unless I mention it in the acknowledgments because you do want it to be factual. But I loved the scenario so much that I, I was loath to find a new one. So yeah, the boat parade carried on. Um, and and it, it is, it's a, it's a tough balance. But I think people who love historical fiction, part of what they love is reading it and then going and doing research after to find out, all right, what really happened and what didn't. And you learn so much as you uncover more. And I always make sure to list some of the resources I relied on in the author's notes so that people can, you know, go directly to the source and and read more about it just the way I did when I was researching it. Do things like say, hey, Nellie Bly, that was a real woman. Let me find out more about her. Yeah. She's a trailblazer. She's so many things. She's fearless to go and do this uh, voluntarily to try to help the people that are there. And she really changes things because the city is shamed into doing something. Right, exactly. So it's a fun thing to just illuminate. Um, and some people had never heard of her. So that's great to... Uh bring the history back to life. Yeah, yeah, that's the best part, historical fiction done well, which the address is, is you make people hungry. That's sort of a little bit of an appetizer there or sort of a movie trailer, even though it's not for the same book, where people will say, hey, I met this person or I visited this era and I want to be able to go there again. One thing about the Statue of Liberty there to absolve you of any lingering guilt or concerns you have is <laughs> in the speeches that Emma Goldman, who's an anarchist at this period, and she talks often in her speeches, she would mention coming into New York Harbor the first time from, I guess it's Lithuania that's occupied by the Russian Empire at the time. And she would talk about seeing the statue in the harbor and she would invoke the Statue of Liberty just the way that we do today in speeches to push America to live up to its high ideals. And then you look at the date that she actually arrived and it's a couple of years before the statue actually went up. So I often wondered, that, well, was that just her memory? Was she just thinking of another time or did she know that it was just such a vivid image that she decided to fudge her own biography a little? So if Emma Goldman can fudge her actual experience of arriving in America, then I think you could take a little license here to share what is such a great moment with your readers in the address. Oh, I love that. Now I don't feel so bad. Thank you very much. Oh, good. It worked. See? <laughs> <laughs> the Statue of Liberty on Liberty Island, formerly Bedloe's Island. Your research took you to another renamed island on the other side of Manhattan, Blackwell's Island, now Roosevelt Island. You also went to the Tenement Museum on Orchard Street. You visited the Dakota itself, of course. When Readers ask you how they can experience the past as you describe it in the address. Where do you send them? What walking tour do you tell them to take? What spot do you tell them to visit? Ooh, some of the highlights would be definitely Central Park. Um, you can go to the Bow Bridge, which is right by the Boat Pond, goes right over it. And that's the bridge that's actually on the cover. And it's beautiful, a great photo opportunity there. The Strawberry Fields, of course, which is just across from the Dakota in Central Park features in the 1980s section of the book. The octagon where Blackwell's asylum was located, the octagon was kind of 
two wings went off either side of it. It was falling into disrepair and it was built into condos out on Roosevelt Island, but the octagon still exists. And it's really fun to go there and you can go inside if you ask nicely. And they do have some photos in the lobby of what it looked like when it was falling into ruin that are pretty eerie. As you mentioned, the Tenement Museum on Orchard Street is a good one. The Morgan Library is fantastic. That's where J.P. Morgan lived, and they've made it into a museum, and you can actually go into his study, and it's incredible with books just going up, you know, two or three stories, and that was actually the inspiration for the library that Sarah sneaks into in the address, and I tried to describe it in there. And then finally, also, there's a great museum that's called the Frick Collection, that's on Fifth Avenue, and that was the home of a Gilded Age family that is now a museum. And it's wonderful to wander through there and imagine what it was like when it was just one family's house. Henry Clay Frick, by the way, uh, Emma Goldman tried to blow him up with a bomb. So there's a, there's a nice little connection. <laughs> We're getting a lot of uh, <laughs> synergy here. <laughs> well, I appreciate you enjoying it because I don't get to talk about the Gilded Age with many people. So it's a chance to put out some things. But it is synergy. That's a great word for it, the perfect word, because it once you start reading about it, if you enjoy the real history of it, you'll love a book that's fiction that takes you back. And as somebody who reads about it and loves it, I do appreciate you as an author putting so much care into getting those little details right, getting things like not having zippers in there, for instance, which would be very easy, keeping yourself to that straight and narrow, and then also listing at the end what was factual and where you took the few places you took a little bit of creative license. Chris, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It it was a lot of work, but I'm thrilled to death. It's it's with the reception and, and the feedback I've been getting from readers. It's been a fantastic couple months since it came out. A bit of modern technology that plays a key role in the address is DNA testing. I've had my DNA tested, which is very easy through Ancestry.com. My wife's a genealogist, so this is something she did for her whole family. For me, it turned up more relatives than I ever thought possible, as I've discussed before on the show, and this has come up. So I'm betting a lot of readers will be inspired or curious there to dig into their own family trees when they read the address. I wanted to ask you how you researched the state of DNA testing in the 80s, and if it inspired you as the author to go take your test, or do you know where you came from? Are you not curious about finding out what exactly the DNA says about various regions you might be from? Oh, I love that your wife is a genealogist. That's fascinating. So in my book, I needed to link or not link four generations. And DNA testing was just starting to be used in 1985. In Britain, there was a court case where it was used for the first time. And what I was inspired by was the story of finding Richard III's bones buried in a parking lot in England. It happened in 2012. They dug it up and they thought, well, this might be Richard III because he has the hump. This person clearly died in some kind of battle. And they were able to track his bones through 19 generations hmm. and confirm that it was Richard III. And so I really studied that to figure out how I could apply that to my family in the book. So that's where that kind of came from. But yeah, I love the idea of DNA testing. I haven't done it myself yet, but my parents are both English and all my relatives still live in England. Mm. And one of my cousins is very interested in it. So she's done a lot of tracking. And we've determined actually that 
one of my ancestors was the butler for Henry VIII. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that's exactly true, yeah. but I, I just love that <laughs> idea. And it explains why I really enjoyed writing about a housekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I picture him getting a lot of calls for fried chicken in the middle of the night from Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah, it's great. If you can hit one of those lines of royalty or something like that, you can go way, way back. So if you do start digging into it, maybe you'll get some inspiration for the next book, which is something I also wanted to ask. I'm not asking you for any spoilers or teases, although it's implied in my question. <laughs> but <laughs> have you started, because you kept this great schedule up from the dollhouse to the address have you started at least thinking about your next novel or are you going to give yourself a little bit of time you know i thought i'd give myself some time but i i just got bored and so i started hmm. doing research and this was it, it's been a, a while now because the books take a long time to actually be published so there's a lot of lag time and i am definitely the book is in motion and it will take place at grand central terminal Ah, oh, look at that, everybody. Grand Central Terminal. That's somebody who's from <laughs> the Gilded Age who lives back then because nobody or a few people call it that anymore. But it was right. it was a different terminal from what it is today. I, I don't know if you're going to be writing about the new one, which is new only to somebody who lives around that time period in their head, <laughs> or the old one. So I won't ask you to spoil that. I'll just look forward to it. But the old building was very beautiful. And fortunately, we had led by Jackie Kennedy after the old Penn Station was knocked down that we spoke about earlier, they did leap into action and save Grand Central for us. So, yeah. And they cleaned it very nicely. Yeah. One thing that you probably know, having passed through, is if you want to wonder how dirty the Dakota was and how dirty the city was in the 80s, go into Grand Central Terminal <laughs> and look up, and you'll see there's a tiny square. I believe it's on like the northwest corner of the yeah. ceiling and they left it brown okay. and you'll get a real idea of just imagine not just the whole beautiful ceiling covered with that soot but imagine the whole city whole buildings whole places covered like that in soot and you'll get some idea of what we're talking about of this era exactly exactly and again it's a wonderful before and after yeah to do on the in two timelines yeah, we walked by St. Patrick's Cathedral with my mother-in-law a few months ago, and they had just re-cleaned, or they had just restored, rather, St. Patrick's. They'd taken down all the scaffolding and everything, because I work over Radio City, so I would walk by all the time, and I didn't think of it, just that they were doing that work a long time. And my mother-in-law said they painted it, and I said, no, they just cleaned it. <laughs> I didn't have that tone in my voice, but it was just, but I realized <laughs> that, wait a minute, no, they just cleaned it. I didn't even notice that it changed color because I just knew it was soot. It's beautiful now. It's an incredible, the difference. I, I was there maybe a few weeks ago and actually stopped and did a double take because it is so beautiful. Yeah, there's some great pictures of that. I tweet those out often at History Dean on various holidays and like where it's just so beautiful, especially since the whole Radio City complex was just nothing there for a while. And you got some great pictures. So you got pictures when it was first built, and then you got pictures before there was anything around it. You know, you had that sweet time when the Rockefeller Center was being built, and you could really get some great shots from down the street of this building. Right. Okay, our lease is almost up here, as it were. So I want to wrap up our chat where chapter 10 ends. That is with the line... The Dakota was officially open. In your novel, in the address, you're inviting readers to climb into a time machine and take them to that very first day and to the days immediately after. When people finish the address, 
What do you hope they'll take with them the next time in our modern world they drive past the Dakota? What do you hope that stays with them, that they think about that era, they think about the address, other than knowing what it was really named for? What do you hope people will take away because it's such a part of New York? Oh, you know, I hope they'll look at it the way I do, where I look up and I just see generations and generations of ghosts who have passed through there. And not only the people who've lived there, and not only the famous ones like John Lennon and um, Leonard Bernstein, but also the people who are behind the scenes, the people who work there, the porters, and the people who built it and, you know, really created this this work of art in the wilds of the Upper West Side. I think that would be a great takeaway. Well, Fiona Davis, author of The Address, I want to thank you for taking us on this remarkable journey today, this great old building. I hope that my passion will be catching to readers. Be excited about a novel. Why not? That's what it's supposed to be when you pick up a great book. You're supposed to love it and want to tell everybody about it. This building has endured from those muddy days of Manhattan in the 1880s through so many changes since then, all the highs and lows, the murders and merriment of New York City. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I can't wait for that third one when we can pull on into Grand Central Terminal and see what's happening there. I bet we'll meet some great people. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your enthusiasm. Well, thank you. It was an easy book to get enthusiastic about is The Address. Again, the book is titled The Address, a novel. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take in Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Fiona Davis, not just for joining us, but for joining me in laughing and having so much fun discussing about this era we both love. The address is really a great journey back to the 1880s and 1980s. Remember to visit her at FionaDavis.net and to follow her at Fiona J. Davis on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. And speaking of Twitter, I do share a lot of great old pictures of Manhattan in the Gilded Age. You can follow me, and I would also encourage you, if you love this era as much as Fiona Davis and I do, to check out the Ephemeral New York blog. You can find it at ephemeralnewyork.wordpress.com, and you can also follow Esther Crane on Twitter at ephemeralny. We'll have Esther Crane on a future show to discuss her book about the Gilded Age. In fact, it's called The Gilded Age in New York, 1870-1910. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together... Thanks so much for time traveling with us today. 
and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.